Okay, we are going to go to Deepan Parikh, partner at Courtside Ventures next. Deepan, welcome to the show. I think your line is muted. Can you hear me now? Yes, perfect. All awesome. right. Sorry about the delay. How are you? I'm all right. I heard you had some technical glitches, but we are all set <laughs> and we are all here now. So um, Perfect. Well, let us start by having you introduce yourself and Courtside Ventures to our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Deepan Parikh. I'm a partner at Courtside Ventures. We're an early-stage venture fund uh, that invests in seed through Series B across really five main uh, areas of interest. And the first is digital media, uh, primarily as it pertains to sports. We look heavily at live event and venue technology. We invest in fitness, health, wellness. We invest in esports and gaming. Uh, and more recently, we invest in this whole new uh, infrastructure around betting. And so okay. those are our five main areas of focus. Um, our uh, LPs come from a strategic background. One is a gentleman by the name of Dan Gilbert, who owns a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball team with the founder of uh, Quicken Loans. The other is WPP, which is uh, the largest advertising agency globally. And so with both of them, we uh, have access to a lot of the sports leagues, teams, media companies, and uh, also access to uh, some of the world's top brands. And so uh, we have invested in about 35 companies thus far. Um, we are global investors, uh, so we do invest fairly heavily in the U.S., but have also done investments in uh, all throughout Europe uh, and uh, have done one investment in uh, India as well. Uh, Maureen, is there an echo? All right, no problem. So, Vipin, what uh, draws you to this sector? It's a particularly interesting and unique uh, investment thesis. What is your background in the sports world? Yeah, so my background originally started uh, at UBS. And so all growing up, I was a huge sports fan personally. Uh, never really saw a career in sports. Uh, yeah. as, as I like to tell my wife, my genes and my dreams didn't align in the sports world. Uh, but I always stayed really close in the sports ecosystem. And uh, right after college, I moved to New York um, to work at UBS in a rotational program they had. So, um, you know, it was a pretty tumultuous time. It was 2007 to 2010. Uh, so the markets were, were uh, certainly feeling the pain. But... As a young, uh, you know, straight out of college professional, it was an amazing experience. I got a chance to see all different parts of the bank, from investment banking to wealth management, asset management. Um, it was during those three years that I really started exploring different opportunities um, and just talking to folks and understanding around the different uh, businesses that exist around sports. And okay. what I learned was sports is really a function of uh, the media and entertainment ecosystem. And so, you know, sports fans globally, uh, at the end of the day, sports is really community. 
And so started working on my own idea um, right after UBS that was building a CRM platform for professional and college sports teams. And so I had partnered up with a childhood friend of mine uh, and we started this company and worked on it for about two years. We had a team of about six. Um, we built a, you know, a good product, but at the end of the day, it wasn't necessarily um, something that we saw as scalable. It was more of a, a platform that was a bit more service oriented and we thought we could build a good business, but we weren't sure how large of a business we could really build. And so uh, kind of made the difficult decision where we decided to wind it down after two years. And uh, fortunately, we had actually put our own capital into it and we hadn't mm -hmm. raised any outside capital. So the decision was actually a bit easier uh, up at that point. But during the conversations when we were winding down, I got connected with a family office that was heavily involved in sports and media. Awesome. And so uh, I came on to help them uh, diligence a number of uh, pro sports teams that they were looking to acquire. And that really was the spark of the investment side uh, for me in the ecosystem of sports and finance and investing. Very cool. And so it was working with them. Uh, I then uh, helped start a uh, incubator and early stage fund, which was not at all involved in sports, uh, but was one of the first people there and helped grow that. Uh, and then got an opportunity about four years ago to come together with my now business partner um, and start Courtside Ventures. So his background was he started uh, out of Penn, his dorm room at Penn, he started a company called Crossover, which was a video analytics company for the sports industry. And so he ran that uh, up until they sold about two years ago. And uh, it was a great opportunity for us to come together and uh, start investing in these opportunities. And how big is Courtside Ventures? Uh, so our, our first fund is 35 million. Um, okay. And in terms of team, um, for fund one, it was only two of us. So it was myself and my partner, and so we were uh, we were traveling nonstop um, to really our our job is to find the best entrepreneurs, companies, ideas uh, across our main verticals. And really, as a first time fund, um, it was about building relationships with other VCs, the sports leagues, founders, uh, and really showcasing the value add we can provide. Uh, because at the end of the day, we are a vertically focused fund, um, yeah. although a lot is encompassed under the entertainment, media, sports umbrella. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we we had to kind of educate the market a little bit in terms of what we were doing. Very cool. All right. So let's talk about some of the investments that you've made. And um, yeah. in particular, as you discuss them, uh, talk about in what state and how did you find them or did they come to you? And what is it about them that really captured your attention? So what I'm trying to get to is how do you look at deals? What's interesting? What excites you and so forth? And what is, your, uh, what is the lens with which you look at these ventures? And let's do yeah, absolutely. Sure. So. You know, for us, it's, it's dependent on the stage. So in fund one, we were so heavily focused on seed and series A. Um, no matter what, it's always a function of the team. You know, there are some funds that only want to invest in repeat founders, some that want to invest in new founders, some that want to invest in founders that only have a certain background. <clears throat> for us, it was 
finding people who weren't necessarily only in sport, but had an interest around the sport and entertainment ecosystem. Because really, you're going to build something for this audience if you have a genuine personal passion and interest around it. And so that was really important for us. And so um, to give you an example, uh, a company we're investors in um, is called The Athletic. And The Athletic mm -hmm. is the uh, one of the fastest growing digital uh, subscription content platforms for the sports industry. And mm -hmm. they've done a tremendous job over the last three years uh, in building and hiring some of the top writers around the entire U.S. And the model is they then charge a subscription to the consumers. And it's been, you know, they've done really well and they've grown quite a bit, but the way in which we first met them um, was, you know, what I think is, is a great story of understanding how, uh, how relationships are kind of developed in the sports industry or at least in the VC industry. And so we had first spoke to them about seven months before we invested. And uh, we, when we first spoke to them, they were really just kicking off the, the company and the idea. And, you know, started diving in slowly but surely uh, behind exactly what was motivating them to build this, what was their unique skill set. And the interesting part of what they were doing and their background was, uh, unlike a lot of folks in the sports industry, they didn't actually come purely with the mindset of having a traditional media or sports background. They were actually very focused on product. And so the founder of that company was previously one of the heads of product at Strava, which is a huge, uh, you know, platform for starting with cyclists, but really anyone who's doing different endurance sports. And mm -hmm. he understood how to build a product for a very rabid community. And so that's really what attracted us to him and his co-founder, Adam, because they had come from that world of building community. And so we spent time with them, uh, you know, pretty regularly over the course of the next uh, six months. Uh, they got accepted to YC um, about five months after we met them, and we stayed in touch throughout YC and then invested towards the end of that. And so throughout that, we had, you know, we had a really good sense and understanding of how they operated as a team, how they were going to scale their roadmap. Uh, really how they execute. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes as investors, we don't have the luxury of time. Uh, sometimes things move a lot faster in the deals. Uh, but that was an example of uh, a company and two really remarkable founders who uh, said what they were going to do, laid it out for us, and really executed, not necessarily at a huge scale, but enough that we felt comfortable that this opportunity could be scalable significantly going forward with more capital. So I have a few questions, um, and, and this mm -hmm. is a little bit to understand, um, as you very correctly laid out, that a lot of the sports ventures are essentially media and entertainment ventures, both to the performing um, media, right? It's basically performance media that, that monetizes with advertising and um, television and so forth. So what, um, what is the product for this company that people are subscribing to? Content. So written content 
Um, so as a sports fan of a local or as a of a team of a city, you're paying for in-depth access to content, mm -hmm. mainly written content. And you know, it may not appeal to every single sports fan out there, but it appeals very heavily to anyone that is a uh, pretty hardcore fan. So if mm -hmm. I, I, for instance, am a big uh, Baltimore Ravens NFL fan, but I love all sports in Baltimore, DC area. And so by paying mm -hmm. a monthly subscription, I'm getting access to very unique and in-depth content that I couldn't get anywhere else from the top writers. Okay. And, and so, that's a large enough you know, market and that's the, enough people are willing to subscribe for that premium content is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the goal really is how do you appeal to, obviously appealing to just the really hardcore fans is big enough to build a large business around subscription. Uh, but then thinking about how do you expand into other sports? How do you expand into other geographies, other mm -hmm. countries? Stuff like that is really where that TAM grows even larger. Um, and that was something we spent a lot of time around initially, right? We, uh, the founders, to their credit, really, really uh, just focused on executing to showcase the TAM rather than, you know, simply just laying out the numbers, which it is generally the way to do it early on. They really showcased in like one or two cities. Look, if we mm -hmm. can do this in a few cities, think about how much more we can do on a larger scale. Yeah. And so okay. they really proved and grew into that TAM, uh, which gave us you know, significant confidence to keep on investing more capital. And uh, over time, a lot of other investors have also come in to invest. Very good, great. So let's do another uh, example, and, and we'll do the same thing. We'll try to understand how you found them, what happened, why did you invest, and then we'll try to understand what are the implications of that investment. Yeah, sure. So I'll give you something that is uh, moved far faster from our standpoint. Um, hold on just one second for me. I want to make sure there's no noise here. Hold on. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, so in terms of uh, a company that we can also talk through, um, we invested early on in a company called Beam, um, which was an interactive live streaming platform for the video gaming industry. And, you know, when this was probably, uh, I'd say one of our third or fourth investment out of the fund. Um, mm -hmm. And so we were still getting our our feet wet in terms of understanding how our process was operating. Uh, but we met this founder, uh, a friend of mine who was at another venture fund, and I uh, took a trip up to Seattle, um, and we are meeting with a number of companies. It just so happened that one of the companies we were meeting with was a company called uh, Beam. And the founder was really young. He was 18 years old. And he was 18 years old but he had built a product and technology that was so remarkable and superior to anything else we'd seen in the industry. But more importantly, he had such a good grasp on how the actual gamers were functioning, operating, what appealed most to them, because he himself came from this world. So and the product, so he built it. Targeting gamers, online gamers. Exactly. So targeting online gamers, 
But the interesting kind of value he had was it enabled the viewers of the stream to actually participate live with the streamer itself. So they could take over the control even. And so we created this interactivity that we just hadn't seen across any other platform. Now, again, it was small scale, but he had built this technology in a fairly short period of time. And the people that were using it were such rabid users. And so this was a clear indication to us that as an early stage company, if you can gain such like high degree of validation from even a small subset of users and gamers, that there was something very real here. And so, uh, no kidding, I literally went back to the hotel uh, that night and my friend and I uh, wrote up a term sheet and we presented it the next day. And, and this is also that, a subscription that, business model? It was not, it was ad supported. Uh, but it was, it was very early. And so, you know, different from the athletic, which is more subscription, uh, more consistent revenue where you can see the growth over time. This was a pure play on the technology, the interactivity, but more importantly, just massive, um, just validation from the small community. Like we always, with companies we meet with or we invest, I would much rather take a smaller cohort of people that are using the product so rapidly versus a much larger cohort of users that are using it far more sparsely, yeah. right? Because it gives you a sense of understanding how the user operates, what really appeals to them. Uh, and so we ended up investing in that company and uh, eight months later, they got acquired by Microsoft. And th those are the kinds of stories, obviously, that are not common, uh, but I think it, it speaks to kind of our mindset from the investment side, which is it's all about the people. Yeah. And if we're seeing someone developing something that is really unique, we're not scared to move really fast. Uh, but if it's something where we want to, we need to get to know the founders more and build a relationship, we're also happy to take our time. Now, again, Sometimes that luxury doesn't stand if it's a really hot deal or moving really fast. And so part of our job is determining how quick can we move and how much comfort can we gain in a short period of time uh, versus having to learn more and develop more relationships. I'm going to switch a little bit to trends. Within the yep. sports tech space, let's say, what are the trends and what are the trends in the different sports? What are the trends in the different geographies since you invest globally? Talk us through a little bit of what's happening, what's the state of the union? Yeah, sure. So um, speaking directly about the digital media uh, and content consumption side, something that we are constantly trying to think about is how is a young individual watching sports content? Um, yeah. I think it, we're past the phase now where uh, a 12-year-old or 13-year-old is going to sit there for three hours and watch a game. just doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore. And so we're constantly working with uh, the media companies, uh, early-stage technology companies, trying to determine how will someone who is a younger age or younger demographic actually interact with sports content. Part of it could be just... 30-second highlights or a recap on Snap. It could be Instagram. It could be a new platform we've never even heard of. Um, mm -hmm. But these are all things that really appeal to us. Now, 
it's even further uh, nuanced when you look at the way folks consume sports content in other countries, right? Mm -hmm. You look at something like India, which we've looked at quite a bit. You look at stuff in China. Um, in India, for instance, it is effectively not all, but very heavy mobile. But at the same time, mm -hmm. when it comes to cricket, there's still quite a bit of linear. And mm -hmm. so trying to determine where does that audience separate? At what age are more people watching linear versus watching on mobile? Um, and what are the different features, subsets, products, or streams that people are watching? That's something that we think about nonstop. Um, also in know, sports, sports is... Um, cricket is a game that people are willing to spend quite a bit of time watching, right? I mean, I, I, when I was growing up, we watched yep. a lot of cricket, and that, those were the days of test matches, five-day test matches. Can imagine how much time we wasted watching these test matches, but that's no longer the case. But there's still a longer game. Definitely still a longer game, um, less frequency, right? So I think the key is if you are Major League Baseball, for instance, and you have 161 games a year, it's hard to assume that a younger audience is going to watch all of that, right? So mm -hmm. same thing with cricket. There's still quite a number of matches. But instead of watching only on your TV for the entire match, you might partially watch on your TV, you might watch part of it on your phone. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is proliferating really heavily. And so we're trying to figure out, we want to play on the infrastructure side. So obviously 5G or 4G rather in India and the infrastructure that Geo has created is a game changer for a lot of content that is being consumed uh, throughout the country. Similarly, if you look at something like China, China's far more insular in terms of the technologies that are used there, but yeah. the market is big enough to have direct deals with some of the major sports leagues, where it's not a third-party media company that comes in. They can really service that on their own. Mm -hmm. And so every country, at the end of the day, comes down to the same thing. How do you engage the community aspect? How do you create engagement? Because it's not just viewing the match itself. What you're really paying for is, are brands gonna get their value in tapping into this demographic? And mm -hmm. so we try to determine where all the different places that brands ultimately can engage with that really coveted younger demographic that is tuning in and watching sports. They may not watch three or four hours at a time, but they're probably checking their app 20 times a day. And so it's higher frequency, lower um, kind of one-time or single use. On the other hand, if you look at the games, uh, the types of sports like soccer, that's a whole different dynamic, right? Yeah, so, so soccer is very different, and, and a lot of it stems from are people more team-driven or player-driven, right? In the U.S., you look at something like basketball, People are definitely team-driven, and the older generations are team-driven. A lot of what basketball has done is actually more player-driven, right? Mm -hmm. If a player goes from one team to another, a lot of times people shift mm -hmm. their allegiance because they yeah. care about the, the players. Soccer, mm -hmm. same thing. People care a lot about the teams, but there's a lot of loyalty behind the players. And when they shift and go to another club, that actually draws a lot of value for that new franchise, for the new fans. Um, yeah. And so soccer is a, a fascinating beast to look at because you have the, uh, the leagues for the countries, but then you also have the national teams. And 
the country teams don't necessarily coincide where the player plays. And so you have this massive, you can look at, you know, people in Brazil who love certain European clubs because yeah. players from Brazil have gravitated or gone out and played over there. And so that's what really ties the global nature of soccer. And so uh, we look a lot at soccer in terms of different technologies and infrastructure. The beauty of soccer also is that the affinity starts at a very, very young age because youth participation um, is still, you know, it's not like a other sports where players start playing at 10 or 11. You start playing at four, five, six years old. And so there's, it's inherently kind of built in, even here in the U.S., where soccer is just a part of your youth. And how do you continue to make that or be relevant uh, if you're a European club or an MLS club or Brazilian club. So we have a big focus on youth sports as it pertains to soccer. Mm -hmm. So um, in the portfolio of 30 companies that you've invested in, um, is there any other that you want to talk about that highlights something else that is worth talking about in the sports spec space? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, I, I can give you a, a couple examples. One, for instance, is uh, a company called the Drone Racing League. And, uh, you know, when you think about it, people are like, why are you investing in a, in a sports league or a drone league? Uh, but the reality is it's an opportunity to own a new sport, right? Drone Racing League has built a business where they make their own drones. They own the league. They own the IP. They own the media right, rights. Right, they own right. the eventual video game revenue. And so that end-to-end -end kind of ownership was really appealing to us. And yeah. the founder of that company is absolutely brilliant. He's done a great job. The one thing that he did early on that really helped was he focused mainly on building a brand. So uh, some people on, on this may have, uh, may have seen it before, but on ESPN, if you turn it on on the weekends for a while, you could see uh, the Drone Racing League matches. And you could, mm -hmm. so they created a lot of awareness early on, not only in the U.S., but also throughout Europe. And so yeah. the opportunity to own a sports league, because um, we can't own basketball. NBA owns basketball. Soccer is owned by EPL, La Liga, FIFA, UEFA. Uh, but this was an mm -hmm. opportunity to own a sport. And so yeah. we're constantly thinking about that. What is the sport? No, no, no sport lasts the test of time, right? So what sport is a sports fan in 30 years going to care about? Like, what's really going to appeal to them? And so that's something else that we, you know, we look at a lot. And then the fourth is more on the esports side, which is obviously taken, you know, massive uh, tailwinds behind it in terms of just the amount of uh, content consumption on places like YouTube and Twitch and others. Um, but we invested in a company called Fan AI, which is an audience monetization and data platform yeah for the uh, video gaming industry. So they go and they aggregate uh, all the different third-party uh, data from streaming platforms, publishers. Uh, they also have an exclusive deal with a large payment uh, provider. And so with that, they create this holistic view on what a gamer looks like. And then mm -hmm. it enables brands to come in and buy against that. So they're really opening up the entire gaming industry and allowing brands to be a larger part of that ecosystem. Interesting. You know, your uh, talk of uh, the drone racing league reminds me of Harry Potter and the Quidditch game that 
that's right. <laughs> exactly. I, I would recommend watching it because when you watch it, it actually does. Uh, Remind me of King is believing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very funny. Okay. All right. So, is there anything else that you want to add to uh, enlighten us about your sector? No, I would say, look, the media side, which I talked about, which is content consumption, I think is important. Uh, some other big trends that we really focus on is the uh, health and fitness industry. Yeah. So that, that is a global phenomenon where you see the purchasing and spending uh, yeah. of the younger demographics and ages um, going through the roof. It's more of a priority than it was for my generation and generations prior uh, because feeling good, looking good, whatever the case is, and being genuinely healthy uh, is, you know, what a lot of people attribute their spend towards, right? Like you will spend more money on an app or a gym today than you did five or 10 years ago. And so we're, every country is like that. You look in India, the trends have been phenomenal uh, in terms of just pure fitness. Um, yeah. Same thing in Europe. Uh, U.S. is a little more mature of a market, but it, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse because when you have a lot of competition in fitness, uh, the acquisition costs are not cheap. And so yeah. as an early stage company, it's, it's expensive to acquire. But I mean, you look at a Peloton type business where it was brilliant where they sell you fairly pricey hardware. But at the end of the day, Peloton's not a hardware company. They're a entertainment media company that also sells hardware. Mm -hmm. And so as, as they're, you know, I think the last valuation publicly available, I think was something like 6 billion or 8 billion, right? It is, it's those types of businesses that we're trying to think through. What's going to be the next breakout? What will appeal to a larger audience? Uh, not only people who live in New York, where we live in a bit of a bubble, but people who live in the Midwest, people who live in areas that maybe don't have as much accessibility to, uh, to a big, uh, fancy gym. And so in-home fitness is something we have uh, invested heavily behind and we will continue to do so as well. Uh, just because people don't want to leave their homes. They want convenience, but they still want the same experience and value of what a gym offers. Now, in the case of the health and fitness ventures, especially where you're doing B2C investments, what level of validation do you want to see before you would invest? Because as you yeah, pointed out, software acquisition is expensive. So. Yep. You know, it's, um, again, dependent on the stage. If we're looking at a seed stage deal, no matter what on the fitness side, uh, we want to see a product in market. It's really mm -hmm. difficult for us to do a free product type investment in fitness uh, because of what we just discussed, which is the actual acquisition cost, but also retention. Understanding yeah. those retention cohorts and seeing if there really is long-term viability here is really important for us. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it depends really, if you're going after a hardware product, a lot of times we don't have the luxury of waiting until that company is fully in market, because uh, mm -hmm. by then they've raised a significant amount of money. And so if it's a more digital-oriented product, we wait until they're in market. Uh, we generally want to see at least uh, I'd say call it three to six months of cohort analysis 
before we mm -hmm. can really get a sense of how users are using it. Again, this is a type of business where we don't need to see millions of users in order to invest. It can be single digit thousands, but having that understanding of how that audience is using it, how frequently yeah. their willingness to pay is vitally important. Yeah. And do you also, um, have you done marketplaces in that space? Because there's a lot of marketplace activity as well. Yeah, so we, we haven't done any pure marketplaces in the fitness world. We've looked at a lot. Uh, there's some interesting companies certainly around that. Our biggest challenge around pure marketplaces there is uh, the leakage issue. And so mm -hmm. if you're going after a marketplace, let's say for personal trainers, for instance, um, it's easy to take that transaction offline. And so yeah. we're constantly trying to think of like, if it's a, for instance, we've invested in a company that is a digital uh, personal trainer, where you have an actual personal trainer on the back end, but they're not with you there in person, but they literally know everything going on in your life and they will create new programs for you daily. And mm -hmm. so that's a higher touch point, but it's not necessarily a marketplace because you're given an, a trainer and that yeah. trainer is really highly credentialized. So we kind of like that um, having a bit more yeah. facilitation there than purely a marketplace dynamic. Um, okay. We are really bullish on the personal training industry in general though, because as more money is spent across the industry, that's continuing to grow. Okay, very good. Well, fascinating conversation of a, uh, about a world that we don't encounter every day here, but it's, um, there is a lot going on and that's why I wanted you to uh, come to us and tell us about it. So thank you for sharing your insights. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me on.